This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is Coronavirus Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. This week, even as Americans fought an invasion by an invisible virus, it also fought with itself over the death of George Floyd at the hands and under the knee of Minneapolis police. He has been remembered in tributes across the country. This past Thursday, CBS News affiliate WCCO was there as the people of Minneapolis gathered to remember the man who has started a nationwide movement and debate. And see people, how they cling to him. They wanted to be around him. You know, George... He was like a general. Every day he walks outside, it'd be a line of people wanting to greet him. The same thing, and that George was somebody who was always welcoming, always made people feel like that they were special, and nobody felt left out. And he would enter into a room. Uh, Everybody would feel like they were special. A sense of uh, sorrow and uh, regret for unnecessary uh, loss of life, and I'm really hoping uh, that um, uh, this uh, e- event will will morph into major reform that's needed not only here in Minneapolis but across the country and George around Floyd. the world. People um, are fed up. We are working on systemic change. When there's systemic racism, you need systemic change to the system. But today, and these, the funeral in Houston and the memorial in North Carolina, this is about him and his life, which was cut short uh, by a murder uh, that happened in our state. There's going to be accountability in the criminal justice system, uh, but there also has to be accountability and change. And that's why there's all people that are out all over the world saying we need to get at this systemic racism. But today is about George Floyd. George Floyd's death was seen in images and even heard on cell phone recordings at the scene at East 38th Street and Chicago Avenue in the Powderhorn section of Minneapolis. I can't breathe. Please, the knee in my neck. I can't breathe shit. Uh-huh. Bro, get up get in the car, man. I will. Get up get in the car. I can't move. I've been waiting the whole time, ah. man. Get up get in the car. Mama. Get up and get Mama. in the car right. I can't. That video was seen by millions of Americans and people around the world. And watching Floyd die before their eyes, tens of thousands took to the streets in protest. In New York City. Uh, via the Brooklyn-bound upper level of the Manhattan Bridge. have been emerging here on the west side for about two hours now. I'm going to give you a look right now on the absolute sea of thousands of people walking up 9th Avenue by West 35th Street. In Los Angeles. You're 14 years old. Why did you come out here today, and what message are you trying to spread? Well, I think we just want a difference. In the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. A rallying cry as peaceful protesters once again took to the streets in Washington, D.C. We're standing together. We're taking care of each other. On Wednesday, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison arrives at a podium in St. Paul. The charges former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin 
with murder in the second degree for the death of George Floyd. Second, today, arrest warrants were issued for former Minneapolis police officers J.A. King, Thomas Lane, and Tu Tao. Finally, I'd like to announce that today, Hennepin County Attorney Michael Freeman and I uh, uh, filed a complaint that charges uh, police officer King, Lane, and Tao with aiding and abetting murder in the second degree a felony offense. I strongly believe that these developments are in the interest of justice for Mr. Floyd, his family, our community, and our state. This story has no quick ending. There will be many motions before the officers can be tried. There could be federal charges, and simultaneously, the police union is trying to get the officers reinstated, claiming they were fired without due process. And as this is going on, COVID-19 refuses to yield its own importance, still killing Americans and even leaving survivors damaged. And the protests may even play a role there as well. Because just as people were being told to stay six feet apart and protect themselves, we have confrontations that are face-to-face and ripe for spreading disease. Professor Mel Herbert is of the UCLA Department of Emergency Medicine and CEO of the online education companies MRAP and Corpendium. It's good to have you back. How are you? It's great to be back. Thanks. Uh, Lots to talk about. Yeah, we have a lot to talk about, so let's get at it. Emergency rooms were already dealing with COVID-19. Now you've got people coming in from demonstrations, both because of injuries, but also many of the people on both sides of these demonstrations that we've watched on TV or been in the middle of are not wearing masks. So how is all of this being handled in some of the ERs? Well, right now, specifically if we're talking about COVID, it's not really impacting the emergency departments. But the lag time here is at least two to four weeks. So you've got this almost perfect storm, these gathering of people who uh, frequently are not wearing masks. Um, there's lots of agitation. There's lots of yelling. And this is a perfect situation to set up another spike in COVID cases. When you're yelling, we know that you can spread those respiratory droplets that might contain that virus a very long way. If you're not wearing a mask, uh, that can be up to 20 feet or more. If you add to that things like tear gas, it again sets up this perfect situation. What happens when a canister of tear gas goes off near you is that you get eye irritation and you start rubbing your eyes and you might have COVID on your hands. You pull off your mask because you're feeling short of breath and you're coughing and you're sneezing. And so these events are just a perfect scenario to produce another wave of COVID uh, cases. When a doctor is working closely to somebody or a nurse, there is the danger of bronchospasms, which of course can produce more of this and project it. Yeah, this certainly sets up a situation where people will be coughing and sneezing. And generally what happens if you're covered in tear gas and you come to the emergency department, most of the emergency departments will try and actually decontaminate you outside. Uh, There are showers outside and wash you down because, yeah, you can spread this to the other people that are working in the emergency department and they're coughing and they're sneezing. Maybe they're going to have an asthma attack. So we try and do this decontamination outside before we bring bring the patients inside. Another problem is that we don't know whether people have this and the people don't know whether they have this. We have people who can spread this before they have symptoms and we have people who never develop symptoms who still can spread the virus that causes COVID-19. Yeah, and I think for a lot of the protesters, you sort of feel like, well, I'm not a problem because I don't feel sick, but there's this pre-symptomatic spread. So you might get symptoms five days from now and you're actually spreading the virus, but you're not sick yet or completely asymptomatic spread. So you never are going to get symptoms, but you are a spreader. 
And it turns out that uh, that's probably how most of the spread is occurring in this pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic phase where people are feeling pretty good and they're doing normal activities. And there might actually be people who really excrete a lot of virus and are asymptomatic, so-called super spreaders. They may be responsible for about 80% of the spread. And again, if you've got a few of these super spreaders in a protest environment, it is a perfect storm to set up a situation where many people will become infected. We have another situation, too, that's been ongoing, which is that people who have other conditions, maybe uh, heart conditions, or people who would normally go to a clinic because their their kid needs uh, vaccines or something like that, who don't want to go anywhere near an ER or even a clinic right now because, first of all, there's their fear of contracting the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and secondly, they're afraid that they're just going to take up space in in an emergency room and that they're just, you know, going to wait even longer than you might in an an emergency department and they're going nowhere near the place and not getting treated. Yeah, this is um, one of the secondary effects of COVID. We did a really good job of saying, stay home. We're expecting um, big numbers of COVID patients stay home. The emergency department is not a good place to go if you've got pre-existing conditions because you might get infected by another patient. Unfortunately, we did it too well. Uh, Volumes in the emergency departments in California, for example, were down over 50%. Heart attacks were down, strokes were down, really serious conditions. But those conditions didn't go away. So people were writing this out at home, having their heart attacks at home, then presenting much later when we couldn't really do as much about it. So it's been actually a huge problem. Um, A lot of physicians across the world now are seeing the same thing, like where did all the patients go? We don't believe that we've fundamentally changed the fact that people are having heart attacks and strokes. We think mostly that they're occurring, they're just occurring at home. And there is some data from, again, across the world in the pre-hospital setting, in the ambulance setting, that um, there has been many more cardiac arrests, many more deaths in the pre-hospital setting than before the virus got there. And we think that's because people are staying home so late. And by the time they call 911, they've had a cardiac arrest or they're about to have a cardiac arrest as the EMS services get there. So this virus has killed so many people directly, but also indirectly. We'll have more with Dr. Mel Herbert on our battle against COVID-19 just ahead. You're listening to Coronavirus Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to Coronavirus Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We've been talking about the battle against the virus with Professor Mel Herbert of the UCLA Department of Emergency Medicine and CEO of the online education companies MRAP and Corpendium. How are the people doing in emergency departments around the country, especially, of course, in the areas that have been affected by COVID-19? Because I'm, I'm hearing, you know, two things. One, that a significant number of people working in emergency departments are contracting the disease. But secondly, that a lot of them are suffering a kind of post-traumatic stress syndrome. Yeah, we're hearing um, that those docs and nurses that are in the hardest hit areas really do suffer from a form of PTSD. If your hospital gets overwhelmed and you don't feel like you have the resources to give the best care that you can, there's this type of uh, moral injury that occurs. Like, my job is to do the best thing I can for every single patient. And if I can't do that because we're overwhelmed, it really wears on people and you can hear it in their voices and you can see it in their faces. Our colleagues right now in Chile, for example, are completely 
and utterly overwhelmed. And they're talking about this moral injury, going to work, and there are literally dead people in the hallways, more people coming in, and they just feel like, I can't do anything. Our colleagues in New York who have come out of the worst of it are saying that they're having really difficulty sleeping and and nightmares, and it's all of those symptoms, difficulty concentrating, uh, drinking too much, all of the things you think about soldiers returning from war, you're seeing in healthcare workers. And it is post-traumatic stress disorder. And these people really need to go and get help. And it's it's hard though in medicine, you know, because we're the doctors, we're supposed to be the ones giving care. Sometimes it's very difficult for healthcare professionals to stop and say, I now need to get some care. One of the things that we're hearing from people now as things start to open up is people hopefully saying, well, at least in the hard hit areas, New York, parts of California, we may have developed herd immunity, but as as I vaguely remember from school, herd immunity was something like you know ninety percent, and even in the hardest hit areas of the United States, we're nowhere near that number. You're absolutely right. Um, herd immunity it depends on how infectious the virus is. So the more infectious the virus, the more people have to have the antibodies to it to stop the spread. So we think for SARS-CoV-2 that you're probably going to need around 80% of people to have the antibodies, to have been infected, to have recovered, to stop this spreading. Even in the hardest hit places in New York, only 20% of the population has antibodies. Here in California, it's less than 5%. So we're nowhere near herd immunity. In fact, this virus looks at a population that's, you know, only got 20% of people that's had uh, antibodies, and that's to it like nobody. It's ready to go again. So the idea that because this has come through places even like New York and been very hard hit, that it can't come through again and look just as bad or even worse is a dangerous misanoma. We're just like we were back in early March in almost all communities, even in Sweden, which was had you know different uh, policies and was much more open. They're not much more over 20% immunity themselves right now. So this virus still has lots of people it would like to infect. Getting back to our initial discussion about the demonstrations that are going on and the dangers, one of the things that we have seen are significantly higher death rates in minority communities. And of course, those are the communities affected by the issues that have caused the demonstrations and the confrontations in the first place. And is that something that's on your mind as well? Absolutely. That This is just so unfair. You know, we thought this virus was sort of um, the great leveler that it would affect uh, everybody the same. Well, we know that it doesn't. Not only does it uh, affect old people more than young people, communities of color which have these systemic problems with healthcare are being affected two, three, four times as much in terms of mortality and morbidity. And so again, it's terrifying to me to see these protests, which I think personally are so important, but I see uh, communities of color that are so vested there and so in so many numbers bringing that back, even if these protesters maybe are a little younger, they're going to come home, they're going to bring it back to their parents, they're going to bring it back to their grandparents. And this group of people is so terribly, terribly affected by this virus. It's really frightening to me. And I just hope the protesters protesters understand if they can do the protesting in as um, a safe way as possible, keep the mask on, 
Try not to yell too much when you're chanting. Try and stay six feet apart. The only good thing about this is that it's occurring outside and that might give us some protection. It seems that this is much more infectious inside than it is outside. So that's my only hope that we won't see huge spikes is because of that. One of the only things that you and I share, because you know, generally day to day, except maybe with an errant piece of information that somebody remembers that's useful, I don't save lives. But for journalists, it's part of our thing is to find out the answer to some but something, find out what exactly is right, pass that on, and make sure that the information is correct. And of course, for doctors, it's even much more important. One of the frustrating things about this virus has been getting your arms around just what is true. And I, quick examples here that I know that you've been dealing with how to treat people. We saw one study, good enough, we thought, to get published in JAMA and the the Lancet that turns out to have almost nothing to it. That was the one that said hydroxychloroquine uh, was going to uh, kill people. And it turns out that the company that did that and somehow got that study published is three people, one of whom is a doctor, sued for malpractice three times last year, whose privileges have been suspended, and uh, somebody who acts in uh, what is what is nicely called adult films. So that's kind of gone down. We have a new study that says, well, it doesn't seem to hurt people at all, but it also doesn't seem to help. Then we have the remdesivir, which was the, the new hope, and the study on that seems to have problems in that the placebo group was in worse shape to begin with than the group given remdesivir, so no wonder it looked better. It, it, for just general people who want to go to the doctor and say, I've heard about this, treat me with this, this is crazy making. What's it like for you? Yeah, it's a little crazy for us too. You know, medicine is an inexact science and it takes years in most cases, many years of multiple studies and peer review and let's study it again and let's do it in a different population to find out what really works and in whom it works. And we're trying to compress that time frame over weeks and it's incredibly dangerous but you do your best. So right now it appears that a hydroxychloroquine doesn't help. Um, it's almost certainly doesn't help. But we have to keep an open mind because the really big randomized trials are not in yet. Um, we have to do this thing where it's called Bayes' theorem. You have to take what you think is right and each bit of new information that then changes the probability of whether you think this is a good therapy or a bad therapy. And unfortunately, because of the rush to get things published, we, and we didn't know anything about this virus. We were even looking at papers that hadn't been peer-reviewed, that hadn't been really fully vetted, and that's very dangerous. You can get some extraordinarily bad information that way, and we're sort of finding that out now. So it might be that remdesivir has almost no effect. It's probably safe. That's the only good news. Hydroxychloroquine is not a safe drug, but it's not uh, terrible, but it probably has no effect. But these are all probabilities and maybes. And people are like, well, why don't you know? Why can't you just find out? Well, it takes months and often years to find out the truth. And there's many stories in medicine where we thought we were doing the right thing because of some studies. And then later on, bigger and better done studies showed that it was wrong. And we're going to find that again. But we are frustrated because we have to do this over such a compressed period of time and we want to do something. But sometimes wanting to do something can be dangerous because we just don't know. 
You mentioned Bayes' theory, which is how all good science is done, which is you never say, oh, 100% absolutely this is true or 100% absolutely this is false. It's false. It's based on the latest information. This is more probably true or maybe much more probably true or probably false or much more probably false. But you always leave open the possibility new information will change things. But that's not how people like to think, especially about something that can cost their lives. Yeah, doctors are no different. We would love to have black and white answers and we'd like to have them right now, but we don't and we live in this area of the gray. Nothing is 100% good or 100% bad and we also have to make decisions about individual patients and the risk and the benefit. Um, and we just don't have enough answers right now. More are coming all the time and then we put them into what we already know and then we make decisions. But it is frustrating. And uh, But it is something that's really important to do. And we were just talking about this amongst thousands of doctors last night. We have to be continuing to be intellectually honest. What do we know for sure or as sure as we can be? What don't we know? And practice within that, with that tension that we would love to try things on patients, but we have to weigh that up against the fact that that might make things worse. So it's very difficult and we won't know a lot more about this virus for a long time. I'm talking uh, years, but we have to practice in the moment. And that is a real tension for everybody. And so week by week, we'll continue to figure out what we know now. Professor Mel Herbert of the UCLA Department of Emergency Medicine is CEO of the online education companies MRAP, E-M-R-A-P, and Corpendium. Professor Herbert, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Gil. It's a wonderful opportunity to speak to you and to all your listeners. You're listening to Coronavirus Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to Coronavirus Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The United States was trying to find the next COVID-19. Scott Pelley for 60 Minutes says that effort has ended. Peter Daszak is a British-born American PhD who spent a career discovering dangerous viruses in wildlife, especially bats. In 2003 in Malaysia, he warned 60 Minutes a pandemic was coming. What worries me the most is that we're going to miss the next emerging disease, that we're going to suddenly find a SARS virus that moves from one part of the planet to another, wiping out people as it moves along. In the 17 years since that prophecy, Peter Daszak became president of the New York-based EcoHealth Alliance. We're a non-profit research organization that focuses on understanding where the pandemics come from, what's the risk of future pandemics, and can we get in between this pandemic and the next one and disrupt it and stop it. In China, EcoHealth has worked for 15 years with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Together, they've cataloged hundreds of bat viruses, research that is critical right now. The breakthrough drug Remdesivir that seems to have some impact on COVID-19 was actually tested against the viruses we've discovered under our NIH research funding. And so that testing would not have been possible no, if it, it hadn't not. been for the work that you did with the NIH grant. Correct. But his funding from the NIH, the U.S. National Institutes of Health, was killed by a political disinformation campaign targeting China's Wuhan Institute. 
Here's something remarkable and upsetting. Congressman Matt Gates represents. On April 14th, Florida Republican Congressman Matt Gates claimed China's Wuhan Institute had, quote, birthed a monster. Birthed a monster. The NIH gives this $3.7 million grant to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. They then advertise that they need coronavirus researchers. Following that, coronavirus erupts in Wuhan. There never was a $3.7 million U.S. grant to the Wuhan lab. But the falsehood spread like a virus in the White House and without verification in the briefing room. That grant was to Peter Dosak's U.S.-based EcoHealth Alliance for disease prevention it does throughout the world. His work was considered so important that last year the grant was reauthorized and increased by the Trump administration. This is, this is evidence. Dashak had been spending about $100,000 a year collaborating with the Wuhan lab. I can't just show up in China and say, hi, I want to work on your viruses. I have to do this through the correct channels. So what we do is we talk to NIH and they approve the people we can work with in China. And that happened. And our collaboration with Wuhan was pre-approved by NIH. What is the theory of the work that you've done with the Wuhan lab? Well, the idea is that we know that viruses that affect people in pandemics tend to come from wildlife. So our strategy is to go to the wildlife source, find out where the viruses are, and try and shift behaviors like hunting and killing wildlife that would lead to the next outbreak. We also get the information into vaccine and drug developers so they can design better drugs. The Wuhan Institute is internationally respected. Two years ago, a team from the U.S. Embassy visited. That team sent a cable to Washington concerned that one lab in the complex had a serious shortage of trained investigators. But the cable, first reported by the Washington Post, emphasized the Wuhan Institute is critical to future outbreak prediction and prevention. EcoHealth's work with Wuhan ended when the NIH revoked the grant. They gave you no reason? They said it was canceled for convenience and it doesn't fit it within the scope of NIH's priorities right now. And yet it was a high priority when the grant was reissued in 2019. Yeah, it is definitely puzzling. I mean, this grant received an incredibly high priority score. It was in the top 3% of grants they reviewed. And that's unusual. I was shocked. I was really, really surprised. Maureen Miller is a PhD epidemiologist at Columbia University who has collaborated with EcoHealth and Wuhan. It stops the research that's essential to understanding where pandemics like the one we're going through, where they start. How often are NIH grants terminated in this way? This is the first one I've ever heard of. When they terminate an NIH grant, and it's not something that's usually taken lightly, it is for cause. There's fraud involved at some level. There is either manipulation of the data, you're putting your participants in harm's way, or your data are fraudulent. And none of those things have been alleged with EcoHealth? Absolutely not, none. Peter Dashak, whose researchers wear masks to shield them from viruses in the wild, says his team is now facing layoffs. This politicization of science is really damaging. You know, the conspiracy theories out there have essentially closed down communication between scientists in China and scientists in the US. We need that communication in an outbreak to learn from them how they controlled it so we can control it better. Um, it, it's sad to say, but it will probably cost lives. 
by sort of narrow-mindedly focusing in on ourselves or on labs or on a, a certain cultural politics, we miss the real enemy. Scott Pelley for 60 Minutes. You're listening to Coronavirus Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to Coronavirus Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. There are encouraging signs that a vaccine may be possible for the coronavirus that has killed more than 100,000 Americans and brought economies here and around the world to a standstill. But a vaccine doesn't do any good unless people are willing to be vaccinated. And over the last decade, an increasing number of Americans have said they are not willing. One of the people working to develop a vaccine is Dr. Peter Hotez, who is co-director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital and professor and dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at the Baylor College of Medicine. It's good to talk to you again. How are you? Yeah, it's good to hear from you. Let's start with the most basic question. Do you think we are close to a vaccine? Well, I don't know about close to a vaccine, but we will have a vaccine. I mean, this is it's actually as vaccine problems go, this is one of the less complicated ones. It's kind of an old school problem in virology. We need to make an immune response against the spike protein of the virus and prevent it from binding to our host tissues. And if you've ever seen a cartoon of the coronavirus, it looks like a donut with a piece of RNA stuffed in the middle of it, then all these spikes around it. If you can create an immune response to it, especially uh, inducing a certain type of antibody known as a neutralizing antibody, you'll have a vaccine. And they're a number of way, established ways to do that. It's just a matter of giving it enough time to actually confirm that these vaccines work in people and that they're safe. Okay, and we will get to more about that in just a moment. But another question I wanted to ask you before we do is just simply is one of the things that seems to be working in our favor that this virus is fairly stable. If there are mutations, they, they seem to be of no great consequence. And that that's right. Uh, we don't think mutations are a big issue at this point. And, um, and as I say, it's a pretty classic problem. Uh, Carl Zimmer, the science writer, uses an expression which I love. He calls it a clumsy virus. And it actually is. Um, it's, uh, and, and we know how to do this. Uh, we, we know how to induce an immune response to this virus. And there's uh, many different ways that we can do that. And that's what you're seeing now through this Operation Warp Speed designed by the president uh, to test many different technologies because we're not sure which arm of the immune response is going to be the best at uh, conferring that immunity to the spike protein. I saw a headline on a story by you, and of course the people interviewed for stories and the people who write stories don't write the headlines. So I need to ask you, because the headline said that you're optimistic that a COVID-19 vaccine, when we get one, could change the negative image that has grown up around vaccinations. Do you feel that way? And if you do, why? Well, I used to feel that way, but now I'm starting to change my mind. And I'll tell you why. Um, I started that way because I thought when uh, when COVID-19 emerged and people were very concerned about this virus emerging in the United States, there were a lot of clamors, calls for uh, having COVID-19 vaccines. And I thought finally the anti-vaccine movement, which has become very strong in the United States, would go into hiding or at least retreat. And um, unfortunately, because the way the program has been handled, the terrible messaging around using terms like Operation Warp Speed, which Tells people, which is telling people that these vaccines are rushed, or the terrible press releases by some of the biotechs that have been very irresponsible, saying we'll have a vaccine in days. 
or weeks. It's it's had the unintended effect to wind up uh, energizing and empowering the anti-vaccine movement. And now we've got a real problem on our hands because we've now had a bunch of surveys uh, looked at by Reuters and the Associated Press. And I think with the Washington Post was the third one that's showing up to half of Americans won't take the COVID-19 vaccines, even if they're available, because now they think they're unsafe because of the uh, the empowerment of the anti-vaccine lobby. You know, I've already talked to friends who are 60 plus and most vulnerable to dying from COVID-19 who have said they won't be vaccinated. And they give two reasons. One is they feel their health is already fragile for some reason and that they might be more likely to be damaged by the side effects of a vaccine, even if the vaccine protects them from dying of a COVID-19. And secondly, it's something you've already referred to. They don't want to be first in line for a new vaccine that may have been rushed, you know, any more than you want to be a beta tester for an unproven new phone app that may keep your phone from ever working again. Well, I'm in, I'm in the first part of that category. I'm 62 now, and I can tell you that uh, I can't wait to get my COVID-19 vaccine. And if, as soon as our vaccine becomes available, if I'm allowed to, I'm going to be the first in line to to, to get it because this is a horrible virus. It causes pulmonary emboli, strokes, coronary thrombosis, sudden death. You know, we've been hearing about the respiratory infection. That, in some ways, that's the least of it. It causes so many other things. This is a killer virus, especially in people my age and older. So uh, I'll, I'll be first in line for the vaccine uh, when, when it's available. Uh, the, the, the issue about being rushed is the truth is these vaccines will not be rushed. Uh, we're probably looking at the middle of 2021 at the earliest, and even then that would be a world land speed record, probably the rollout more towards the end of 2021 or even 2022. I imagine some of your concern about this goes to where we have been so far. Uh, the polio vaccination rate in Washington state in the United States is now below that, and by a good deal, below that of Rwanda and Yemen. And, and I take it that this is the thing that really concerns you, that not only may it forestall something that stops the spread of COVID-19, but that we're actually going backward in terms of diseases that we thought we had beaten. That's right. Measles returned for the first time in the United States last year, uh, more than 1,200 measles cases. Uh, and now, in part also because of the, um, the uh, implementation of social distancing, for legitimate reasons, parents for a while stopped bringing their kids to the pediatrician. So the Centers for Disease Control just released new information in their MMWR, Morbidity Mortality Weekly Reports, saying that MMR, vac measles, mumps, rubella vaccination rates have declined by 50%. So now I'm worried about a dual epidemic of both measles and COVID-19. And don't forget, we're now moving into flu season as we head into the fall. And a lot of people are not getting their flu vaccine, so even a triple epidemic. And so this is this is a real pause for concern. And we're talking about, remember, last year, 18 uh, kids wound up in the intensive care unit in New York because of measles, 50 hospitalization. That seems like small potatoes now with everything we've heard about COVID-19. But, uh, but that's a potentially serious problem. Flu is still a leading killer, and now COVID-19. And it may be the case that we'll have vaccinations for all three that are not being used. And we have a, another addition to this. If people are afraid to take their kids out, not only because of COVID-19 and the SARS-CoV-2 virus, but because of trouble in the streets, 
that may be another reason that people hunker down and kids don't get their shots. Well, I think you bring up a good point. You know, these, these we're probably looking at a lot of instability in the weeks going up to the election, not only because of the events that are happening uh, in, in Minneapolis, and I'm here in Houston, and uh, we're having the march for uh, George Floyd in downtown Houston, and we're watching that very pensively. But also, uh, there's a number of different scenarios that are being looked at. Uh, one is the possibility that COVID-19 will reemerge uh, later this summer and fall. I think that's a possibility. There are additional models suggesting reg regular seasonal spikes uh, around January, February, and that's a possibility. And, and I don't think we're going to have the vaccine right away. So it's a matter of figuring out how to live with this virus and re-implement social distancing when, when necessary. And hopefully when the vaccines become available, convincing people to take it. Good luck coming up with it. Thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate it very much. Good talking to you. You're listening to Coronavirus Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to Coronavirus Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. To stop COVID-19, states are hiring contact tracers. Megan Cerullo has looked at this for CBS News Money Watch. How does this work and how has it been used in the past? Contact tracing is commonly used to track the spread of uh, sexually transmitted infections and tuberculosis. Contact tracers are given the names of individuals who have tested positive for COVID-19. They make contact with them and right off the bat, so they're cold calling these strangers, right off the bat they're asking them personal questions such as where have they been and who they've been in contact with. The contact tracer then locates those individuals and warns them that, that they might have been exposed and they advise them to self-isolate. So that's, that's the process. Well, who are these people going to be working for? Is there a standard way of getting this done? It's a patchwork effort. There's no federal um, initiative. So it's happening on a state-by-state -state basis. The efforts are usually run out of local health departments. And almost every state is, is ramping up hiring. Uh, in New York State, for example, the governor's announced plans to hire up to 17,000 contact tracers. In California, the, the goal is 10,000. In Washington State, it's, it's 1,500. Do I need any kind of expertise or degree to do this? While the requirements vary, you don't need a background in medicine. An interest in public health is certainly uh, required. And you need to be resourceful. You need to have the ability to track people down. You have to have good interpersonal skills because you're going to be reaching out to strangers and you're going to have to be persuasive. You're going to have to persuade them to, to self-isolate and also provide them with resources they might need uh, while they're in quarantine. Now, we're so unsure of how long this virus is going to be with us. So how long would this job be expected to last? It's expected to last about a year with the possibility for it to be extended. And this can also lead to a career because there are sort of more senior uh, roles as students supervisors that require a little bit more experience. So for all those folks who are who are unemployed right now, who've lost their jobs possibly because of uh, coronavirus, this could be a good place to look for work. First question everybody's wondering about, how well does it pay? In New York, uh, the salary range is uh, $57 to $65,000. In Georgia, I saw a job posting advertising uh, $15 an hour as the pay. In Massachusetts, it's around $27 an hour. And Apple and Google are developing apps to help get this done. Those apps use Bluetooth data to 
alert users that they might have been, that they've come into close proximity with someone who's infected with COVID-19. But the real issue with apps is they can't replace the, the work that human contact tracers do. Uh, Contact tracers are, they're making contact with individuals who are sick, who might be scared or distressed. They need to have empathy. They also have to be persuasive. And there's no app that can do that. Other countries have been doing this. How much of a track record of success does contact tracing have? It's not an experiment. It's a it's a tried and true effort. And it's it's been really successful in Asian countries, in China, South Korea. And Tom Frieden, who's the former director of the uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, has said that the United States needs to hire up to 300,000 contact tracers. And that is the equivalent to uh, the scale of the effort that was rolled out in, in Wuhan, China. So it, it, this really is an effective way to break that chain of transmission and has been successful in, in other countries that have started to reopen their economies. Megan Cerullo from CBS News Money Watch. This has been Coronavirus Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network, produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Gil Gross. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.